And we are live with our 85th episode of Absolute Absec. Join, I'm, I'm going to mess it up. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter. Joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, we're running a little bit a little bit late today, but that's... That's my fault. It's all Ken's fault, so just blame him. If you are catching this later, that's fine. It'll be up on all of the all of the channels. But I did mess up on pushing things out to uh, podcasts and Google Play last week. So, yeah, you may have like three or four episodes queued up if you are listening to, <laughs> listening to us that way. Um, this week, we're joined by David Lindner. Uh, we'll get into introductions with Dave shortly. We're happy to have him. He's even wearing our Magic Time shirt, so magic it is time. definitely Magic Time today. Um, yeah. As far as announcements go, I'm headed to B-Side San Francisco this week. Uh, I'll be there Saturday morning for the Secure Code Review Workshop, and... I don't know what's going to happen with RSA now that everyone's backing out because of COVID-19, right? Because of the coronavirus that's going around. But <laughs> so I, I may be around there somewhere, you know, wearing a mask or something like that. Anyway, if you're going to be in San Francisco, let me know if you want to get, get together. And yeah, other than that, I think we can just dive straight into it, Ken. Um, I did see yesterday that Port Swigger posted his top 10 web hacking techniques of 2019. So they finished the polling there and he posted his top 10. Um, if you haven't seen those, go check them out. I think we'll start doing some sort of a walkthrough on each of them like we did last year. Uh, there's some really interesting techniques in there and stuff that I haven't dug into that deeply. Um, he did pull his name out of contention, James Kettle did, or his, uh, you know, request smuggling stuff because it it by far won but he didn't feel right about adding that to his list of top 10 when he was the one so uh we right. can talk about that as well um but there's uh, yeah there's some really interesting thing I, I mean that that one's an interesting balance of very offensive techniques for finding cool bugs like bug bounty people and also kind of hey these are general things that you should be looking at so i mean it's a good kind of alternative to the OWASP top 10, right? As far as what's really out there and what people are finding. But. Yep. No, it's pretty interesting. They've got, so we, we have some of the, we have some of the like cash stuff sort of still there. Um, abusing metaprogramming for unauthentic. Ah, I like it. So yeah, cause metaprogramming, we've talked about on this, this uh, podcast before, um, but it's just code that writes code. It's very, very prevalent in um, the Ruby landscape. But um, wait, Ruby? You know, what? What? What's that? Is that a? Is that a language? Who, who, who uses them? <laughs> People who do metaprogramming. Oh, okay. <laughs> but well, like so, and I'll also, you know, like uh, you can write it in. It's called reflection in other languages. Python has it. So there is the ability to to do metaprogramming where code's created on the fly based off of dynamic variables. But like you just don't see it um, all the time, sort of done. So you see like a lot of this is to cut down on repetitive uh, functionalities that only do like something slightly different each time. Um, Anyway, so uh, or there's other reasons too. There's like lots of reasons, but anyways, it's what's well, one of them. But it's pretty cool because you see several. So between the metaprogramming on uh, and and unauthenticated 
uh, RC for number four and then uh, number seven ex exploring CI services. It's like, once again, you know, CI services and like, cause they use Jenkins in the, on number four as like a, yeah. yeah. So example. once yeah. as an example, yeah. So once again, you see this um, year after year, it's just like, yeah. Yeah. coming it hasn't gone gone away so no no and they, at this and he point does, he does talk about that for at least seven years we've been talking about it so just <laughs> putting that out there for at least seven years this has been i know myself nah, it's been you, fine yeah yeah well yeah it's yeah yeah well, well we'll get into that in a later episode i'm sure um yeah. but if you haven't perused them yet you know we're posting the link up there uh, it's, you know, become familiar with them because even if you're on the defensive side, if you're protecting the site or trying to code against some of these things, it's very, uh, it's useful to know about what's actually being, what's actually effective and where people are getting paid, right? Where the bug bounty guys are actually finding these exploits. So, yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anything else. Ken, did you have outside of, you know, come sign up for our course for Black Hat, right? Yes, please sign up for our course at Black Hat because you will love it and you will learn how to do code reviews uh, in a very efficient manner, manner. But not only that, you'll walk away with the, the feeling of having done a thorough review and being able to show others that you have completed a thorough review. That's the main thing I think that's imp that's that I like to impress upon people as a value takeaways. You can, you can feel confident that you did a good review and you can show your work and do you, other do you people guys, can read it. Do you focus on a specific language in that course just, uh, or is it just a general? No. Uh, yeah. It's just a general, um, like the whole idea is we didn't want to make it language or framework specific. So we've got examples in like we've written apps and node Python or Django Ruby um, Net. We'll use, yeah, we've got .NET and Java ones that we'll use as examples. But the whole idea is you should be able to apply the framework to any language as long as you get the basics down of that language. So We actually make you bounce around a lot that the, the first day uh, between, mm -hmm. like, make you bounce between languages and frameworks just to, conf just to, just to take the concept and then apply the concepts to demonstrate and make you feel comfortable that you can do this in even a language and framework you're not uh, familiar with. Yep. Yeah. We want you uncomfortable because that's, yeah. you know, who's, that's our who's, life. Uh, who's your, who's your target uh, audience? Would you say? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I would say, I would say if you're a developer that has any sort of knowledge of security, you can, you can definitely go through this course. Um, Obviously, internal teams, consultants, uh, probably the only people we recommend that don't come to the course are people that have never done AppSec before or have mm -hmm. never, if you don't know SQL, uh, if you've never heard of SQL injection or remote, you know, remote code execution or um, XSS or something, you're probably, th this is probably not something you're ready for yet. Mm -hmm. But everyone else. Yeah, it's people yeah, that want basics. to actually conduct a secure code review. I, I mean, most of the people that we've had in there have been consultants or at least developers that are working for an organization that are, you know, diving in. But like in the prereqs, we talk about 
hey, you've got to know what the OWASP top 10 are, right? We're not teaching you what cross-site scripting is, and we're going to refer to cross-site scripting and input validation and, you know, uh, like, so it's more of an intermediate course, right? Somebody that's got background in application security. So. Cool. Let's dig into David Linder's background. Yes. You, we've David. introduced you. We've talked about your background a little bit before on this show. To catch those who are not familiar with the great David Lindner, as I like to refer to him, if you're not familiar with the great David Lindner, uh, he is currently the director of application security at Contrast Security. And if you're not familiar with Contrast Security, you should get familiar. Uh, yeah, no, Contrast Security um, came about from... I want to say it was Jeff Williams and Dave Wickers, right? Or Wickers, Wickers sorry. And, and, and Arshan Debersiagi. There you go. And so that was initially they had formed Aspect as a consulting company. They split it off into, or they created an entirely new company, a, a product security company uh, focused primarily, correct me if I'm wrong, on runtime application security uh, program. Is that so? Uh, it was first IAST, so the interactive application security testing, uh, and RASP was kind of uh, an afterthought, if you will. Okay. Well, clearly, I'm learning today as well as the listeners, uh, which we're going to get into that technology because we talk. It comes up, but it, you know we don't get to usually talk to somebody with um, an insight like David Linder has. Uh, Seth, David, and myself all work together at the consulting company we don't mention. And uh, we had a great time. We worked alongside together. Uh, very much enjoyed working with David Linder. And let's see. Uh, anything else? I, I mean, if you, don't, if you don't know, David Linder has spoken a whole lot. Uh, I really enjoyed his... I think I mentioned this in the last podcast. I really enjoyed your LocomocoSec talk. If I didn't, sorry. But uh, and again, Locomoco Sec is a security conference for you, Seth, in Hawaii. <laughs> really? In case you didn't know. In case I didn't know. Thanks. And David uh, is also a uh, really good golfer. Um, he hails hey. from Iowa. <laughs> Iowa. And, uh, and he's the reason that voting uh, fails in in uh, Iowa. He's yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, what, what did you I, do? Uh, I, uh, I wrote I that app overnight with my fourteen-year-old. Uh, so, um, well, that's that's, that's what it looked like, right? That's where, yeah. that's where it came about. That's, yeah, that yeah. Well, I know Kevin Cody, and and um, I believe you did too, David. Like, dug into that code a bit, right? When it when yeah, it all they first they, came uh, they released the the APK code at least, or the the APK. Um, we we reversed it a little bit, and I mean, it was um, it was your basic first. React native app, yep. uh, you know, not much to it. You know, they're they're using the traditional um, analytics engines, which seemed weird for a voting app. Um, you know, they had a lot of uh, you know, like Google API keys and such like that. And, you know, nothing like crazy egregious, uh, but you know, things they could have done better. And you know, if given more time and you know, utilizing anyone with any sort of security background um it probably would have been done differently well i like i i mean from what i saw of it as well like you said it's it's it was a first pass of a react native application right and i'm like really did you not i i, I know they didn't test it right like whatever that shadow io org or whatever it was that put it together they just 
they weren't a development org or a development shop and you could tell, right? Like there was not a lot of testing that went on with it. They're referring to dev, uh, yeah, <clears throat> development backend APIs. And I, yeah, it just felt very amateurish, right? So, I mean, I mean, I don't know what you expect to get out of an organization when you pick it up and try to push something through that quickly. Um, but you, you would think with the amount of money that's involved in campaigns and, you know, the DNC and other things that they probably have at least a little bit of oh, testing. Yeah. I mean, you know, Maybe. after after a debate, they're like, oh, so-and-so just got $10 million of donations and they spent 60 grand on a mobile app. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. probably could have. Yeah. yeah, you kind of get what you for there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and for I those don't know, who don't know, sixty grand is not a lot on a mo on a mobile app. No, it's not. Yeah, that might sound like a lot, you know, but it and it, and correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you was it was it you guys that were saying that it looked like a just like a straight up template, like it looked like a templated app that someone just sort of built on top of, or yeah, was that? It's, it's it's like they pulled up the the React Native uh, example app and just started building on top of that. I mean, it mm -hmm. was it was pretty vanilla yeah right well i mean if we know anything it's that stack overflow and templates that's the way that we code so it, it should be good right yeah right yeah yeah well okay so that brings us to another point right did you see the uh mit release on the votes app the other one oh what state was that from was it virginia no it wasn't virginia yeah west virginia it's yeah, well yeah. it was you west virginia one but it's supposed to be deployed in multiple other states for people that are like out of state voters or whatever it is. Right. Okay, let me post, I'm pushing a link. Yeah. I, I had started reading through that. It was um, pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I mean, but that one, that one was used for actual voting and not just like this caucus thing. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, which brings in a whole other realm of potential threat vectors and, you know, validation of people and all that fun stuff um, mm -hmm. that they didn't necessarily need for the, the caucus app. Yeah, I, I don't know. That that one is a little bit more interesting because they are, I, I mean, they are using backend blockchain, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, that's, that's what we do apparently. But uh I mean, it was like anything, right? Like it, it, they found that remote access into the device, you could actually change the vote, right? And I'm like, yeah, if you can get remote access into the device or local access, right? Like all bets are off at that point for any yeah. mobile application. You and I both know that we've dealt with enough of those. So I, like, it didn't feel like it was overly shocking, um, but there was stuff that they could do to prevent them from happening. I mean, if you think about real use of the blockchain and how that should be, should work, um, it just felt like it was a little, again, a little bit immature, uh, but not as bad as the as the Iowa app. So, no, they, they put a little thought behind it, at least, right? A little, yeah, very yeah. little. <laughs> <laughs> it's rude. Yeah, I don't know how soon uh, we'll get to a point where I'd be comfortable with uh, voting on a mobile device. Um, it's probably it's inevitable, right? Um, and and we probably should go that route. Uh, I think it would get a lot more people to vote. I mean, you look at the the number of mobile devices there are in the world; it's more than there are people. 
Yeah. Uh, but then that doesn't mean there's a one-to-one mapping to people, right? Like some people have, you know, like me, I have how many uh, because of testing and whatever else, uh, which brings in the question, well, can I vote now as me and Seth? Because I have multiple mobile devices. How do they verify who Seth is, right? Uh, that's the stuff that 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 I would kind of lose sleep over, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you know, we we have problems with people filing taxes today. Like, oh, someone just f- has already filed because they knew your nine-digit social security number. So how how do we protect a voting app if we can't even protect filing taxes? <laughs> right? Like, like it's uh, it's inevitable. Um, but I hope they take more time to to really figure this out and and lock it down. I mean, it, it, I'm more comfortable with it today and the thought of it than I would have been say 10 years ago uh, or, you know, when the, when the first iPhone or Androids came out. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, but they're also going to be using APIs and, and we know what that means. Um, and, and that's a, that's a scary proposition. Yeah. It, I, I don't know. Like I go back and forth on it because the convenience is a whole whole different bag of worms right like we have so many people that don't especially in the younger like generations right you know they 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 talk about how 18 to 20 and 29 year olds like only like 20 percent of them vote right um and and it's partially because it hey i have to go wait in line or i have to go do something else i have to fill out an actual paper ballot and send it in right like it's there's all these kind of barriers to entry whereas if it was an app on their phone You'd probably see those those rates increase, but then again, the parties are not want that to happen, right? Depending on the demographic that they are, you know, yeah, whether that's Democrat or Republican or whoever, right? That uh, it, it, yeah, it just feels like there it, it is inevitable. You're right, and it, it's coming, and there are ways to secure it. We know that there are. Um, I know some of the you know the most recent like. Uh, Hey, you've got people that are deployed that are in the military and they have to vote from, you know, wherever that they happen to be deployed. Some of the ways that they've done that in the past, like we're talking email, right? They've basically sent an email and to a, you know, I'm like, where's the verification there? Well, they had the PDF, right? They filled out the PDF and sent it back. And you're like, oh, and you counted that, right? Like, I'm okay. I guess that's good, but how do you verify that that email I mean, was again? Maybe, there's no. Maybe, maybe we should bring bring back the black phone. What do you think? Yeah, <laughs> honestly, right? Like, there's, uh, I don't know, uh, like, identity verification, right, is is a huge problem when it comes to voting. Actual like secure identity. Yeah. Um, and I, I know people are are working on it, right? And I know that like the new passports, the new like real, like the IDs and things like that. Eventually you, you should be able to use something like that to verify a person, but I don't, I don't know how we do that securely right now. Aren't there some states that are allowing you to basically use your phone uh, to show your driver's license? Um, you know, as you know, that I, I know they do for things like, you know, your car insurance and stuff like that. But, I thought, you know, maybe with this new new ID or whatever those things are called, um, that doesn't work anymore. But um, they're definitely expanding when it comes to things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, to roll some of that into 
the mobile devices, like the secure enclave. You know. No. Um, but yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. So so you'll sign up for all of that. Got it. You'll be the tester on it. Yeah. I mean, sure. As long as I can vote for you too. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to vote for Seth Law in every state. I mean, that's fine. See, see what happens. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> No, why not? Let's go, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Sweet. I'll even I'll, I'll even pick different candidates in every state. They'd never mm -hmm. know, right? Mm -hmm. That's good. One of our listeners said there there are options to cast your vote before you visiting a voting center on a mobile device or computer to generate a QR code that you get that QR code scanned when you visit in person. It looks like, um, and then uh, you verify your options and then you turn it in. So that's I mean. I do think you need like physical pre I don't know. I, I feel like, well, and regardless of whether, you know, there's needs to be a physical presence or not. Um, but although that's a limiting factor and as software security practitioners, we're supposed to believe that can be secured to the point where um, we, we could do this. But having said that and having contracted for the government, I don't think they have their shit together enough to, uh, have technology that is foolproof. I'm just, I, I mean, I'm, what, what, what would make you say that we just spent 60 grand on a really shitty mobile app <laughs> for the Iowa caucus. Yeah, I know. Why am I so bleak? No, I mean, if you've ever worked around <laughs> software security in like a government con contracting sense or as a GS or whatever, like in the government space, it, I don't have, I'm not trying to put them down. There's the problem is not that, Oh, that there's a lack of intelligence or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. Have you ever had to deal with that? You know, that, um, contractually, like just the way the contracts are set up, how they procure work, uh, how, uh, I believe it's OPM goes through the process of like getting contractors. Basically it's like a lowest bid thing always, uh, almost always. And, um, you have all these different, so like, let's say you want to have a mobile app company who contracts to build a mobile app. Well, um, they're going to have to hook into certain systems. And then, so that requires input and like having checklists done on all these other departments. And it becomes this whole, like, just for, forget about the technical aspects of it, just from like a bureaucratic and procurement standpoint, it becomes a very difficult thing for them to do. But like, I, I mean, that's just from government contracting that I say that I don't know how, like, I, I have no idea about like how the voting app software is even procured. So I just don't have a lot of faith in that whole process just because of our, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's friends and family, right? I mean, let's just be real. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that state by state as well. So right. each state yeah. gets to determine, you know, how they tabulate votes and whoever's in control in that state is the one that goes out and picks the vendor. But again, right. So you're not dealing with as big a budget in like in Iowa or Utah as you are in California, right. Yeah. You're just, you yeah. just don't have the, the same yeah. revenue to, to handle that. So I, yeah. I mean, Iowa's yeah. barely a state. I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, <laughs> people live there? Is that, you know, yeah. I'm, well, the, the ones that do go to Hawaii for Locomoco sex. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah. And once Wait, again, that's a security that? conference. 
<laughs> we also we we also go to Colonel Con. You guys should go to that uh, uh, in Omaha. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a newer uh, hacker con that uh, um, I will be at. Should be fun. Um, trying to kind of take over the uh, missing Derby Con. Um, so. Oh, sweet. You know, it's yeah, Nebraska. It's Nebraska. We don't get along with them very well, but, you know, um, I'm excited. They have free popcorn, too, which is pretty sweet. Oh, nice. <laughs> I mean. Wow. Sign yeah. me up. Sign me up. Yeah, right? I actually did go to a conference one time where it was like, uh, yeah, they had um, they had gourmet popcorns, uh, popcorn flavors. You could, you could, it was pretty awesome. I don't know. Yeah. It was pretty yeah. neat. Tasted good. Sweet. That, that, that sounds like a good thing to throw at uh, presenters as they like screw up or whatever too, right? Yeah, better better than uh, what is that Schmirnoff ice or whatever <laughs> to, to do it uh, at DerbyCon. Yeah. Hey, so while we've got you on, uh, okay. I wanted to ask you about um, your experience with bug bounties because I think if anybody oh, yes. I've seen, you've been pretty like you and Jerry Gamblin have been pretty vocal. Uh, about your feelings with bug bounty triage and standing up a bug bounty program. Um, your thoughts. I'd love to get your, your thoughts on bug bounty stuff. Uh, how do I say this and not be a dick? Um, <laughs> hey, it's our podcast. You can say it and be a dick. That's fine. You can, you can, you can just give your opinion. I, you know, I, I've been, I wasn't consulting forever. Um, and found a lot of things over my time. Uh, bug bounties have been around for a while. Uh, you know, nothing against the bug crowds, hacker one, Synax, um, whomever you use. Uh, but frankly, the the submit and wait thing uh, drives me crazy. Uh, you know, for for the bug bounty that we run for contrast, um, we try to respond within a day. Uh, it's just something that we take pride in. But when someone who spends a lot of time trying to find issues and systems <clears throat> and we finally think we found something and we submit it and that vendor just fucking sits on it for weeks, months, uh, in some cases over a year, um, I'm not sure why or how that's even fathomable uh, for someone who's not only paying Bug Crowder Hacker want to host these things, but to keep people around, right? Like my whole thing is, is respond to people. Even if you can't verify or validate it quickly, respond to them and keep responding to them and interact with them because you're driving away the good folks, the ones that are going to help you secure your systems. You know, I've, I've run into issues where I'll submit something. You know, there was one I had found, um, uh, you know, a mass assignment, which was a Ruby thing, you know, uh, and still continues to be in some cases. Um, and I submitted it. I had a video, uh, you know, I was able to make some changes. I was never able to get it to the point where I could like take an account over, but I was sure that with certain encodings I could, uh, and I submitted, I submitted the, the videos and the evidence and all that. Um, didn't hear anything for three months. Three months. Three months. Wow. Three did, months. did they send you even like an initial, hey, we're investigating this? No, no. Nothing? Uh, oh. no, nothing. And then the 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 host of this program, I'm not going to give that away either, finally responded with, we'll reach out to them and, and see what's up. Um, five months goes by. They finally respond and they ask some questions. You know, what version? It was a mobile app. What version and, and all this stuff? And they said, it, it's, a, it's a vulnerability in the API. What's the version of the mobile app going to tell you? 
Right. Um, wait, wait, wait. Eight months goes by and they finally get back and they're like, we can't reproduce it. I'm like, of course you can't reproduce it. It was fixed. Because after the five months, uh, I tested it again and it, it wasn't working anymore. Like they, they made a change. They fixed it. Um, so they couldn't reproduce it. Uh, that pisses someone off, right? Like, yeah, it does like, because you feel like you've been cheated. Like, like my my philosophy is, if you touch code, you pay out. Period. Right. Yeah. If you touch code, you pay out. Uh, when you say touch code, you mean make a fix. If you make a fix, uh, or even a hardening, or hardening, or whatever. Yeah. And even if it's a kudos thing, right? Like if it's a, if it's a low risk to your org or whatever else, like give them the kudos or the points or whatever. Um, don't say I can't reproduce it. That's lazy. Uh, it was working. Here's the video evidence. It was working five, six, eight months ago, right? Like, so I, I get I get frustrated as a hunter. I know uh, a, a guy in my team, Matt Austin. You know, he spends pretty much every Thursday night, and he's one of those guys that. He only submits criticals, right? Like RCEs and right. things like that. Um, and he'll wait. I mean, he's, he's sitting on one. He's waited over a year. Uh, a critical RCE. Like, yeah, it seems a bit less. I, I'm just, I, I get confused. I mean, I know people are busy. I know this industry is, is seriously in a shortage of talent. But if you stand up a bug bounty, it's a lot of work. And, and I think you've got to be ready and prepared for that because you're going to get a lot of shit, uh, which hopefully your bug crowd, your hacker ones, your Synax will handle for you. Uh, but you're also going to get a lot of really good results. I mean, there's some amazing people. You know, there's this one guy in, in Morocco that is he just blows my mind with the, the bypasses um, that he's submitted to us. Nice. Um, yeah, it's like I would have never thought of that. I mean, he like he's submitting bypasses that are so low level, you know, as far as like, oh well, this is using the um, this ODBC connector, and and that connector handles these things this way. And I'm like, holy mother, <laughs> you know, things that I just yeah. never dig into. For those people, um, like uh, we we of course have the private bug bounty program, but we had one person that's like sounds like similar to what you what you're talking about. And um, they kept finding, you know, authorization after author authorization issues. We actually ended up just contracting them to just like go and look at the, just continue looking the way at the things they've been looking at and just like hammer away. And uh, so, yeah, like you have other steps you can take besides just a private bug bounty. Like you can actually, you can actually contract people to, to do, you know, if like they're really good at something, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, I mean, my whole thing is I want to keep people around. You know, Hacker One because they have right. like three hundred thousand uh, hackers signed up. How many of those are actually engaged? Probably not even twenty percent, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the, the ones that are the, are probably the ones you want to keep around. Um, that that are spending the time. I mean, when it comes down to it, the amount of money you're paying out is pennies on the dollar to what it would cost you to hire some firm or try to hire these people that are you know signed up to these programs to just come do it full time right like it's not even close um i mean they're finding some some just amazing things and and in a lot of cases they're not treated well 
Some of the things that we've seen come out of the bug bounty program, I guarantee you, even if we did contract to three different companies to look through, <laughs> through, yeah. through our functionality, they wouldn't have like found it just because some, sometimes it is absolute. I mean, this people forget, like there is definitely like with what we do, there's definitely systems and ways to maximize your effectiveness and to maximize the likelihood that you're going to find vulnerabilities and you're preventing them for sure. Like no question. What nobody wants to, well, I don't want to say nobody, but what I feel like isn't talked as much about is the fact that there absolutely is a special talent that it go like once you've systemized everything, right? And you've got like all things being equal, like people are following the same processes, like same methodology. There is absolutely a human element to where it, it just takes that connection in your mind to chain things together and to sort of like find creative and that's a creative thing. That's like, that's your, that's your flavor. If you want to say on top of the systems that are in place to like, when I say systems, I mean like I'm very much a believer in, 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 in making the process of reviews and, and uh, dynamic assessments, whatever, like a, a system, a, a yeah. sort of like a repeatable process. But yeah. Um, then there's just those things where it's like, I could have hired three, four different contracting companies. It's a very low likelihood they would have actually found with this bug bounty researcher chained together. So yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the value. I, mean, I think, you know, we, we, we run kind of an interesting bug bounty. So we, we actually have a, a like an automated backend that spins up a Docker image uh, running WebGoat um, that is running our RASP product on WebGoat. Um, so it kind of makes it easier for the, the researcher to spin this up. They know where the vulnerability is, right? It's WebGo. Uh, they know where XSS is. They know where SQL injection is. And our whole thing is, can you bypass the RASP protection? Because you know what? There's bypasses. I'm not going to sit here and say there aren't. Uh, there always will be. <clears throat> but we want to know about them to see how we can make a product better. Um, and what we've noticed is there's really kind of there's really two kinds of, of researchers that we've seen. There's the ones that come in and they push the button on SQL map and let it run. Because we can see all the results in our UI, right? Like, hey, they, they I'm sure it triggers tons of alerts. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, we, hundreds of thousands, right? Um, and then there's the ones who, you know, they come in and you can see some pretty crazy crafted exploits, and and you can see as they go along how they start figuring out based on the exploits they're seeing how our product works, right? It's 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 awesome. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that, that that's pretty descriptive of the just like the bug bounty guys in general, right? Is there's the there's the ones that are okay, we're using the tools and we're just doing fly, you know, basically as quickly as we can. Is there anything that we can we can find here that we can spin for profit and then they move yeah. on, right? There's not a you know, they don't they don't they don't dive in. And I don't feel like those ones are as again, they, they're not gonna find those fine-tuned vulnerabilities in the different yeah. bug bounties. Um, that, I mean, you're going to have to deal with both types, but still. Yeah. We talk about yeah. in our course, you got to get, you've got to get to know, like, so the researcher you're talking about or researchers, they're taking, they're taking either their process or something they saw that got accepted to another bug bounty program. And they're like automating it and making it, that's their system. That's their one little system they're putting together is automating that and just trying it against all targets. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. there's the researchers, what you're talking about. And this is the same thing we talk about in our course, which is like, you get to know the application, you get to know, 
how it behaves. You get to know all the weird little edge cases there could be. Like, what are all the what are the, all the different ways that authorization occurs, and how do we identify people, and you know, how's session handling, and all these little basic but fundamental and important bit, bits. And then, like, what's the business logic? What's the business purpose? What are the ways we? What do you, what should you not be able to do? And you really get to know it and, and well, and then you can find those vulnerabilities. But yeah, the people you're talking about. Yeah, that, that don't do that. That's there's 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 a different level there, you know, and and it's interesting. I, I don't know if Hacker One does it, but Bug Crowd has this thing now where, like, they can fulfill your your yearly need to perform uh, an assessment of your net, an app, right? Okay. You know, like you would contract out with an aspect security or a demo group or you know someone like that to come in and do yeah. or or a set law, uh, and. <laughs> now they have they have this service and, and I'm I'm curious how it works, you know. Are they are they are they using the same sorts of researchers, you know, and do they like say, Hey, I know you're good at XSS, so I'm gonna you, you focus on that for this system and spend this amount of time on it. So I don't know. Um it's just an interesting uh, model, I guess, for a bug bounty program to start offering that sort of level of you know, assurance, if you will, because, you know, bug bounties are point and shoot, right, for the most part, you know. Yeah, so that's interesting because th there's a couple of them that I'm involved with that they've started to, uh, so basically offer researchers um, a checklist of stuff for each app that needs to be checked. So th th this is what's going on behind the scenes. So they've got a list of, hey, most researchers log in and they're looking for, you know, cross-site scripting or request smuggling or whatever else. Right, right. And then they move on. But so they put together this checklist of, hey, for like authentication, has everything been checked? Have you tried to log in and brute force or whatever else, right? And they will actually pay based on, did you spend, you know, a half hour, an hour of your time checking this off? Um, you know, it's not as, and then if you find anything, they'll still let you submit that bug for additional bug bounty money, right? Hmm. And so it, it's kind of this guarantee that, all right, if I spend an hour looking at authorization issues with this application, I'm going to at least get paid a little bit because I won't, you know, I may not find something because there's no indications there, but at least there's some sort of coverage. Um, so I think that's I mean, how you know, with as, as an organization that has to do yearly reviews uh, for compliance reasons, um, it's enticing because the cost model is way cheaper <laughs> but but i still don't have a feel for how how much assurance like i don't want to do it just for check the box right i, I want to do it to get some level of assurance yeah uh so so it, it's just an interesting thing that, that at least i'm seeing with bug crowd i don't i don't know if the other ones do something similar or not yeah yeah uh, they do they do like i know mm -hmm. they do i don't know how how widely it's offered or which clients they actually provide that to um the question that i always had there is again you're running into the same issue of okay these researchers may be really good at finding ssrf but they have no idea you know anything on like how sso or whatever else actually works um so i, I mean it's a, it's always always an experience factor and you know hey, just because somebody found something this year doesn't mean they're going to find it the next year if you leave it there because of that model that they're using. So, But uh, you could argue the same thing probably about most you know pen testing firms or others that are out yeah. there, depending on who the, who, what, who the resource is that's actually doing the testing, right? Yeah. Um, but, okay, so 
we've talked a little bit about bug bounties and we were already at like 40 minutes, whatever, right? So um, let's talk about RASP, IAST, WAF. Um, I know there is a fair amount of confusion in the community at large, right? Especially from kind of the researcher's perspective or offensive perspective on what they're actually dealing with and running into, right? Sure. WAF is by far the most uh, mature. It's been around the longest as opposed to the other technologies. Um, so, and what WAF is a web application firewall, but can you give us an explanation of IAST versus RASP, where that fits? You know, yeah, so general, yeah. Uh, so I asked is is I, I guess it's pretty well accepted now. Um, interactive application security testing. Um, it's meant to basically uh, take the place of or supplement your your traditional SAST and DAST, your static and dynamic assessment tools. Um, you know, the great thing about what IAST is doing is is it, it utilizes binary instrumentation. You know, like a new relic does, right? It, it uses instrumentation for performance, uh, but our product in IAST uses the instrumentation for security reasons. Um, and the great thing about it is it's it's in your app. It knows everything that's going on in your app um, and it can see data coming in and data going out. Um, and it can determine with that data flow um, if there's a, a vulnerability there. Um, so it doesn't have to guess, right? Like your traditional SaaS tools, you know, you run like something like a check marks or a fortify, um, it has to make a lot of guesses, you know, it puts together its abstract, abstract syntax trees um, and, you know, maybe it will only go five levels or 10 levels or whatever the, the thing is set to. Um, and it has to make some guesses because it's not following the actual data in the, the application in, in it when it's running. Um, so the great thing about the, the IAST platform is it's very accurate. Um, you know, because we know exactly what's going on. <laughs> um, we've seen the data come in in that HTTP request, and now we see what data is going out. Uh, and if that data coming in is ending up in what we would call a sync, say a SQL sync, and it's someone that, you know, sends in Seth uh, slash or whatever, uh, we can 100% say it hasn't been validated, it hasn't been touched, it's not being uh, used in a parameterized query, this is vulnerable SQL injection. And the great thing about IAST is, is you don't even have to send attack data, right? It's just based on the data itself. Um, you know, so you can just send Ceph and we can tell you uh, that you have a SQL injection vulnerability. Um, so it's very accurate. Is that um, the data being, is it because the, is it because of both the data being not valid, clearly not validated if it's an email address field and it's like that. And then, but then also like, uh, like a stack trace being generated or something along those lines. Yeah, it's exactly. So the, the, the high level of what happens, say we, we utilize like the, the, um, get parameter, um, from mm -hmm. HTTP request, uh, within Java, um, that would be considered a vulnerable source, right? So we're getting tainted data because we know anything coming from the HTTP request is vulnerable. Right or, or tainted, right? You can modify it to whatever you want. So if if I'm getting uh, the name field uh, in the get parameter request, now I can trace that. So the name is Seth. I trace that through a bunch of what what we call propagators. It may go through a bunch of different objects, methods, you know, whatever, as we trace it all the way back to the SQL query, right? If none of those propagators or none of those methods or objects that it's being saved in or modified in or whatever else do any sort of validation, um, 
or we can tell that it's just doing a dynamic SQL query. We can tell without certain or with 100% certainty that that's vulnerable to SQL injection. We run into this all the time, uh, uh -huh. specifically in cases where you can't parameterize something. Like if you're doing an order by, like an ascending or descending, like 100% of the time where I've seen clients say, hey, this is a false positive. I'm like, no, watch this. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's 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 vulnerable uh, because it's it's really hard to get your head around. Um, so it it it's really intelligent as far as how it traces that data. Now there are definitely times where there are validators that we don't know about. I mean, we try to make some intelligent guesses. Uh, you know, like for cross-site scripting, like if you're if you're doing some some level of validation, what we'll do in the UI is we're like, hey, this looks like a validator. Do you want to add it as one? You know, uh, and then you won't see it again. But uh, it's it's very accurate. You know, you're not going to get thirty thousand vulnerabilities in a scan because it's not scanning; it's just always on. Right. Um, you're, you you'll get fifty, and and more than likely, forty nine or fifty of them are are real. Right. Uh, I yeah. think the last number we had was like two percent false positive rate, um, which is pretty awesome. Uh, you know, is it perfect? No. I mean, it's going to miss things that SAS probably gets, and it's going to miss something that DAS probably gets. Uh, but what it does get is very accurate. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, uh, and you hear people talk a lot about like 30,000 false positives, say, or even 10, whatever, 2,000, whatever. But what they um, maybe don't also mention is sometimes you're just getting, you have like one function that's vulnerable, but that function's reused everywhere. And then, yeah. so then it looks like, you know, my gosh, this has this class of vulnerability everywhere. But it's like, nah, if they made one line of code change, like for instance, um, let's say you have XSS everywhere on the site, but it might just be like, uh, you know, raw sort of output in the header that's included in every single HTML templated file. Well, right. then like, yeah, it's one, it's one like little bit of change and it fixes it everywhere. So yeah, like versus, you know, having, like you said, 50, because why I bring that up is when you talk about like what you said, which is you have a, a source of tainted data and then like it, it goes through different functions. You could like potentially say, okay, well, this one function is vulnerable, but I don't have to like then also say it's 3,000 other places because of this one function that it showed up. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's hard. I mean, uh, it's very language specific because, you know, it's, it's running in your application uh, and it's very framework specific. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the last I knew, our Java agents supported like 900 different frameworks. Uh, and, and that's just, it's barely touching the tip of what's. Yeah, what's it's, it's, there, right? it's a drop in the bucket, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, can you imagine the, uh, the CICD on, on every build for that uh, and, the, and, the, and the, the testing that's done? Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. So, so anyway, that's IS. It's very, I think it's very well understood. Um, you know, it's, it's really it, making a move in the market. Uh, yeah. I mean, it seems like a, it seems like a natural progression from a WAF, right? Something that sits in line, but doesn't know the internals of an application. You switch to IAS where it is in the application and can see everything that makes a much bigger difference. I, I mean, I remember, Oh crap! What was the initial WAF that was out there? Uh, mod security, not mod. The the um, Imperva. Imperva, yeah. Remember, Imperva tried to get around it by putting like a database proxy on the back end to identify SQL injection vulnerabilities. Right? There was this this weird 
like two agent install process that you had to do. You had the WAF on the front end and a you know a database proxy on the back end that would watch the transaction and be like, oh, so the same thing that you're doing within contrast within the application itself, it was trying to do external, but it was always this huge like latency issue that they had, yeah. right? Because they couldn't. That's the biggest concern with, with developers with WAF and RASP solutions. They're always like, is it going to slow things down? Yeah. Oh, so 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 let's talk about performance. So I asked, is definitely a performance hog? Because um, you can imagine what's going on here. It's it's instrumenting every single method in your app and every third party that you're pulling in. Uh, so I asked today, is meant more for your test type environment? Um, I don't think you'd want to run it in prod. We do have some clients that will, you know, they've got 500 instances of, of their web app running and they'll rotate a few in just to get better coverage. Uh, you know, because that's that's the other thing that that IAF struggles with is is coverage. Uh, so if that path isn't used, we don't see it. Yeah. So so if you have terrible uh, tests or regression tests or, or no tests at all, uh, that makes it really hard to. That to never happens. Everyone writes tests. Oh yeah, everyone <laughs> writes amazing tests. But but the great thing about IAF is is it's helping solve our uh, cybersecurity talent shortage. Uh, because if I can have this tool integrated into a CI CD that's always running and I get direct feedback in my, my uh, dev environment and I can fix things as I go, I don't necessarily need a security expert to tell me if it's a, an issue or not, right? Like if, if we're pretty confident and real confident that it's, it's accurate and they have good guidance on what they need to do, they don't need us anymore, right? And that's what I'm hoping <laughs> happens. But if you have a report that has 30,000 false positives, you're not going to give that to a developer and be like, hey, figure out which ones are real when there's like seven of them. Right? Yeah. So that, that's where we have to come in and, and, and spend time cycles and, and you know, frankly, money of or the company to, to figure out which seven of them are actionable, right? Um, so, so that's IAST. And then, and then there's RASP. Uh, so RASP is still kind of new, I guess. Uh, you know, the term has been around for probably five years. Um, you know, it, it's something that, that it's, it's runtime application self-protection. Um, you know, we have a lot of people in the, yeah, the I messed the that acronym all up. Sorry. Runtime application self-protection all right yeah 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 it's 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 a little different um you know and you know there's a lot of folks that are trying to i guess fully replace their laugh with it um but it's not really there yet um it does things differently so if you think about a laugh this way it's a terrible analogy but you know i, I, I try to come up with these all the time but think think if you go to the zoo and uh, you, you go up to, to the, the monkey cage and they're selling bananas and you can throw the bananas through, through the, the fence because they fit um, because you, they've allowed the bananas to get through. But maybe you brought your own apples and you throw those and they won't fit. Uh, it's kind of like what a WAF is doing. It's, it's looking at the size, shape, what it looks like as it's coming in and it says yes or no, right? Um, but what if I want to allow the apple, right? Now I have to go tune this fence, this laugh, to allow the apple and the banana in. Or maybe I want to go back and not allow the apples anymore, right? So I have to go back and tune it. Um, and, and the thing is, is, is how do I know that the monkey actually likes the apple, right? I don't. Um, so it's, it's a weird 
thing that we've used, we tried to solve this, this issue back in the day, like 2002, right, was mod security. Uh, because we knew firewalls, we knew network security, but hey, web apps, we always open port 80 and 443 and allow everything in. So let's create a firewall to fix our problem because that's what we did for network security. Uh, but really, it doesn't give you any insight into anything other than the traffic that's coming to your app. It doesn't give you anything from an actionable standpoint, right? Like if I see something coming in, I'm like, oh, that looks like CVE XYZ. I'm going to block it. How do you know your app's even vulnerable or even using that component, right? You don't. Do you care? Obviously not. Um, so laugh is just that. On the edge, block it ignore it or have like alert fatigue, right? Uh, which we run into a lot and it's always being tuned. You know, we, we, we had a customer call the other day <laughs> and they sent me this spreadsheet and it was like, Hey, how does, how does your RASP product protect all of these things? And it's, it's just all of the different patches that they've applied to their laugh over time, like for CVE this and CVE that. And I'm like, all right. Let's let's back up and talk about how how RASP works. So how RASP is different is is it uses the 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 same sort of binary uh, instrumentation that we that we use in IAF, uh, and it follows the data. So we can be like, oh, it's coming in as this get parameter, and at this point, uh, we run like some detection mechanisms. You know, does it look like? something is an attack because in rasp you want to see and block attacks so you have to have some some regular expressions and some other things that we're doing you know internally and everyone kind of handles rasp differently um to to determine yeah that looks like a sql injection so then we can follow it and if it ends up in a sql sync we can block it right and say hey that looked like an attack so now there's actionable items there right if we're getting tainted data in it's not being validated and it's ending up in a SQL sync, um, that's vulnerable. Uh, you can now have your developers fix it. Or if you know about it and you're comfortable with it being blocked, uh, you can defer remediation, right? We, we have a lot of customers that use RASP for that. It's like, oh, I have this 20-year-old Java app running on Java 6. Uh, I know it's vulnerable to, to, to SQL injection and command injection or whatever else all over the place. I don't have anyone to fix it. I'm just gonna put my RASP here and be confident and comfortable that it's gonna help protect, you know, actual attacks. Um, you know, so so that's the difference, right? Like in a laugh, if it saw SQL injection, it would block it. In a RASP, if I see SQL injection and it goes out in an XSS sync, I don't care, you know, yeah. it's never gonna execute. Um, you know, in, in, in what we do, we call that a probe. Because you might still want to know that you know someone's trying to do something, but you know I don't have to. There's no action to take. There's no no developer I need to talk to, or or you know someone I need to wake up in the middle of the night because you know I'm getting actively attacked from a SQL injection perspective. So are you seeing the same sort of performance hits that you do with IAST? So it doesn't do full binary instrumentation because it doesn't need to. Okay. Um, so, so it's a very right. kind of limited set of it yeah, is. instrumenting the dangerous, like the tainted stuff as it's coming in, and then probably the sinks as they go out. 
Yeah, and it, and it uses some of the mechanisms uh, that a, a WAF had traditionally used, but more in depth as far as like scoring. Like, so as soon as we're confident in something being an attack, we can really stop tracing it till the very end at that point and determine it's it's actually going out in that vulnerable sink. Um, so there's a lot of performance gains that we can get there. Um, you know, we can we can put it in aggressive mode, uh, which acts, I guess, more like a laugh and can block things sooner if yeah. clients are fine with that. You know, if it's a high high risk application and they're okay with that, they can they can kind of put it in that sort of different mode. Um, but it's, I mean, there's definitely a performance impact. Um, and you know, it just imagine how difficult it is, right? Like people write apps different. <laughs> Some of them are written very eloquently, uh, and do things how you would expect, but most of them don't, they're, they're written poorly. They have massive payloads, like, you know, thousands and thousands of JSON parameters coming in in one request, right? Like, yeah, we do that. Well, guess what? People do that. Um, and, you know, that does definitely cause an impact because now we have to process every single one of those inputs. Right. Um, but it's it's more accurate than way, way more accurate than a laugh would be, uh, which doesn't create the same alert fatigue. It gives you actionable items uh, because, you know, for a fact that it's actually ending up in some vulnerable sink, if you will, uh, where it would actually execute. Versus okay. the wall, you have no idea. Um, oh, we lost Kenny. That's okay. We we can keep talking. It looked like his internet was was slow. He kept freezing there, so that's fine. No worries. No worries. There he is. He's back uh, now. So so yeah, Rasp is great. You know, it's it's interesting. Sorry. You know, you're starting to see things now where uh, FISMA and PCI and um, uh, some of the NIST uh, like the 853 are starting to add IOS and Rasp in yeah. them. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're finally coming to the forefront, you know, Gartner is finally splitting out RASP from WAF, um, you know, which it's about time that they did that because they are different. Um, they do different things. They protect you from different stuff, you know, like the WAF is very good at detecting and, and blocking DDoS type attacks. Um, RASP, not so much yet. Uh, could it? Sure. Uh, it could be built into it, um, but that hasn't really been the, the focus. Uh, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of the early days um, of EDR, uh, where we have our virus protection that's doing some signature-based stuff local on our, our machines. And now we have this EDR that can do some more in-depth uh, detection and response type of stuff. And for a while, we did them both, right? I, I, I kind of feel that's where we're at right now with WAF and RASP, where WAF is like 100% detect, you know, uh, regular expression detection-based. Uh, looking for uh, certain ways of doing SQL injection, things like that. You're you're always updating your your uh, regular expression definitions and all of that, and and then you have the RASP on the back end that doesn't have to necessarily do that. Like you know, we have uh, we had like a, a WebLogic CVE come out the other day. It was an RCE. Um, well, we there was no change. Like it's it's the same vulnerable gadget all over the place. They were just using it right. So the yeah. RASP knew about it and, and protected it and blocked it. You know, you look at things like Equifax, whew, which I think you guys talked about this last time, right? Uh, with the, the the PLA and whatever else. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's a gap, right? Like, so Struts comes out, there's a CVE release, but how long does it take for that CVE to get released, right? 
quite a while. So there's there's a gap in coverage in in your WAF, um, and the RASP helps solve that too, right? Because the RASP doesn't have to necessarily be updated to detect that vulnerable component within that struts uh, RCE CVE, if you will. So it helps with the gaps as well, or where you can you know now go patch your WAF after the patch comes out, if you will. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and I mean we're we're pushing further into that like uh, you know bug or exploit life cycle, which is, I mean, especially as a large organization, you that's that's what you see is that proof of concept gets released, and all the you know script kitties or whoever else goes out and they use that, and then yeah, it yeah. takes you know a week for the WAF vendors to get that together or whoever else to actually patch something, and then you've got the whole patching cycle. After that, like, I mean, that's part of the reason we still run into a lot of those vulnerabilities, you know, two months down the road or a year down the road is because of the difficulty of actually patching that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so I like, I mean, it seems like there's different pieces, right? Then they kind of make sense between the, you know, the WAF, the RASP, the IAST behind the scenes, um, and the, the, uh, synergies i don't know like lack of a better term like how they complement each other as far as hey what it, what is it that you're yeah, using I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be able to tell people just go use them all uh but frankly it's expensive yeah uh you know and and you're going to use whatever works best uh in in your organization you know i think the, the is and rasp platforms work a whole lot better in in this devops mindset and you know teams that are in working in one and two week sprints, very automated. Uh, they don't want interruptions. They don't want you to come in and, and do, you know, go push a button and run your, your SAS and DAS tools and then give them a report, right? Like they, they want to know about something like immediately, like, hey, I've got my sprint work. I've got my ticket. I'm working on this one little feature. I make my changes. I submit it to CI and right away I get two vulnerabilities that I just added to the system that I can address right now, right then in my sprint. That's what they want. Uh, that's what yeah. I want. Right? Like I want them to build secure code faster, and it's part of their process. Um, with our older tools and the older way of doing things, we we can't do it that way. And so we have these reports. We put some tickets in Jira. They get groomed. They get put on the backlog, and they sit there, <laughs> right? Uh, and we need to get away from that. Uh, yeah. So you know, hoping we can get there uh, with with IAST uh, and RASP because you know. There may be some things that you introduce that you want to defer uh, remediation, and you'll be able to do that if you, you know, we, we keep talking shift left, but it's more like extend both ways, if you will, right? Like extend throughout the life cycle, because uh, there's going to be things that you find and want to protect and, you know, find early. I needed a further remediation or whatever else. I mean, we have some massive clients, you can imagine, with thousands of applications. There's absolutely no way for them to prioritize some of their vulnerabilities. Um, so they have to rely on some other controls to uh, help them defer some of the remediation of those, right? Same thing with like third party libs. You know how hard it is to update those, you know? Yeah, we run into that all over, right? Like, it, yeah. you know, you've got the large organizations, but you even have small startups that basically just don't have the resources to go out and spend, you know, if I, if I drop them a report with 20 findings on it, I've got to be very careful about what I call out as high or critical risk 
because of the time that that's going to put onto their dev team when they're trying to, you know, basically survive and sell their product, right? It's this, it's this really fine line that the organizations have to walk. And yeah, yeah I, I mean, if security's not paying attention or AppSec or ProdSec's not paying attention to it either, it's going to be a, a, the developers will stop responding. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you guys saw the, the React one, right? With with all the uh, the library dependencies, it was like 1500 or something ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, well, initially, yeah, yeah. Right. initially it came yeah. out and you did it wrong. It was like a million, but yeah, 1500 is still ridiculous. It's still ridiculous. Right. Uh, but you know, that's another great thing about, you know, IS and RAS is we don't, we don't care what you're using. It's, it's still going to trace your requests through that third party library. Right. So it does help you determine like, Hey, am I actually using the vulnerable piece of that library? Um, yeah. which was, you know, you know, kind of a game changer as far as, you know, do I need to really update this component right now? Um, am I vulnerable to it? Because that's always been a question, you know, how many years as a consultant and, uh, you know, you run your NPM audit or whatever. It's like, oh, you're out of date on these 10 libs and here's the 10 CVEs that, that uh, are associated with them. Well, how do you know you're actually using the vulnerable piece or the vulnerable component? You don't. Nope. Uh, and that was always the argument. Well, am I using the vulnerable thing? I'm like, uh, 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 I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. yeah. Kenny, I see you again. Nice to see you. Yeah. Sorry about that. Connection issues. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I like, I, well, I appreciate like the, like actually talking it through and I'm sure, you know, some of the, it, some of the listeners will as well. Um, because that's always it. Like everything gets lumped together. Everybody's like, oh, just I asked RASP. Um, and actually knowing where those lines delineate will help people actually figure out which product is, or, you know, what technology they should be looking at for their organization. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I know, I know I've been involved in multiple projects for clients on, on different aspects of that, but I don't know how widely known it is in the industry, just in general. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to work very well in the uh, waterfall waterfall esque approach, uh, where you have you know because you know if if there's an update that needs to be made to the the agent that's living in the code, um, that requires a system restart, right? But in the DevOps world, that's fine because they're continually rebuilding and starting things up anew and yeah. building new containers and doing all that fun stuff. Um, so it's definitely looking more forward into the more DevOps world than, you know, it's, it's just really hard. You know, some of the bigger organizations that may have like, oh, well, we have a faction in China and they respond to us like once every three months. Um, and they're the ones that need to do the server restarts and, and, and things like that. It makes it really hard um, to, to really do IAS and RASP well um, in that sort of organization. Yeah. Yeah, which makes sense. Well, uh, so I, I mean, I know you guys deal with a lot of large, like large companies. Are you seeing pretty good penetration with startups then? Um, Silicon Valley companies trying to implement RASP and IAST? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's all over the board. Um, so yes, <laughs> uh, you know, we, you know, the, the, the great thing is, is, you know, there's actually quite a few organizations like that, the startups that have a single application that just use our free, uh, contrast TV, it's called, yeah. um, it's, it's full featured, it's free. You can use it on one app, right. Um, 
And we actually have quite a few organizations that do that. And that's fine. It's, it's kind of what it's there for. Um, and, uh, you know, as they grow and whatever else, then they might come talk to us further for, for actual, you know, other licenses. But, um, I, I, hell, I used CE when I first started here to find, uh, uh, vulnerability in, uh, Jira, um, and, and got paid a bug bounty for it. It was pretty awesome, actually. Nice. Like, I just want to see how this works, you know, and, and see, see what I can do with it. And sure enough, there was a, um, kind of like a patriversal-ish type issue uh, in the way that Jira handles stuff. So, cool. Well, good. Um, yeah, like, uh, Dave, thanks for your time. We've been going for a good hour and 10. I know that uh, Ken's got a hard stop here. Um, yeah, but, uh, I got to leave in two as, minutes. As far as, as conferences or where people can find you, I obviously at Golf Hacker Dave on Twitter. Um, yeah. But where else, where else, where so, else are you going to be? Uh, there's a, there's a, yeah, so there's a small chance I'll be at Snowfrock. I haven't decided yet. That's coming up okay. really soon. It's like uh, March 5th. Uh, yeah, really good one day, really good one day con in Denver. It's like their their local OS chapter. Really good speaker lineup. Um, and then Colonel Con is I think it's like the 25th through 28th of March in yeah. Omaha. Highly recommend it. Some really good talks in the lineup there. Um, I know a few that are speaking there for sure. Um, and then I'm speaking at InfoSec World, which is the week after that, down in Orlando uh, at Disney World. Uh, so I'm excited about that uh, and waiting on a shitload more um, potential presentations. I'm hoping for Dublin since we have a office yeah. in Belfast. Uh, you guys, you guys going to make it over to Dublin too, hopefully. Um, yeah, that's what we're hoping. So yeah, cool. yeah. fingers crossed. So, so that's that's like my next month. Uh, it'll be busy, but I'm excited to kind of get out of the the winter for a bit. Yeah, we all are. Well, good. Appreciate it, Dave. Uh, we'll have you back on sometime soon. All right. Uh, there's uh, I feel like there's always stuff to talk about. This goes by so. Sorry quickly. for making us go late. Yeah, but it's fine, Ken. Um, yeah, find us at online. Least, at least you still have all your teeth, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was yeah that was the thing. So sweet. All right. Yes. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank thanks, you. Everybody. We'll see everybody see online. All right. Bye. Bye.